We all know it. We all know there's something wrong. We all know that children get excluded at year nine and there's something going on. They can have undiagnosed learning differences. But no one does anything more than just talks about it. Attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia will not hold you back. You're dyslexic, it's kind of your super. Anything's good. Dyslexia. Hello, we are Move Beyond Words and welcome back to another episode of our podcast sponsored by Arts Council England. I'm Elizabeth Riffian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. In this series, we gain a deeper understanding of dyslexia in all its creative and often misunderstood forms. Today, we talk with speaker, writer and advocate Marcia Brissett-Bailey. We talk about the barriers and experiences of her childhood as a dyslexic, British-born Jamaican woman, the importance of finding your voice and her ambitions to reshape the social and cultural narrative surrounding dyslexia. Welcome Marcia Brissett-Bailey to the Move Beyond Words podcast. Thanks for being here, Marcia, and taking time out of your very busy diary to, to come join us and chat with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's lovely to reconnect because I would say it's liberating. When you're around other neurodivergence or dyslexics, sometimes we don't need to say nothing. We just get it. And we just want to be in awe of each other and just be there and just like, yeah, we're connected. We've got the dots somehow. We just don't need to sometimes say things. Yeah, 100%. We're just in awe of being there and being with each other. It's like, what's that about? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's that feeling of like, oh, damn, I'm not alone. And you get it. And like, I get it. And it's it's just that feeling of community, you know, of, yeah. of a real community. And it's really special. And, and uh, yeah, I'm so glad to be a part of that. Yeah. And I really wanted to kind of something we, we did, haven't talked about before and, and I would love to hear more of is, is how was it growing up with dyslexia? So my journey with dyslexia was a, a one that I call an alien kind of out of body experience because I really loved school. But I didn't feel that school loved me. So what I mean by that, I um, spent a lot of time trying to be, I don't know if that's called normal. But um, every time I tried, I was getting lots of mistakes being made with a red pen. And, you know, all of those kind of things that it really just made me feel that I didn't belong. And I felt very isolated. I almost feel like I can remember it like it was yesterday because it was so impactful in shaping some of my emotions, that kind of anxiety, all those things developed from primary school. Yeah, I literally um, felt isolated. I love, love school. It just didn't work for me. And the biggest one was reading aloud. This is quite common for a lot of us, but I didn't know how to read until I was about 10. So that's when the trauma started for me. And then what I thought I would do, I thought was really clever. What I thought I was doing is that if I don't speak, and I say it and I I almost, I can hear myself trying to whisper because it's like a secret. If I don't speak, that will make me invisible. So I selectively actually muted myself. That led to um, my mum going to the school because she could see I was getting more insolent at home. I was really becoming more shy yeah they sent me for therapy but the therapy what I learned now in my adulthood they thought there was something else going on at home but it wasn't it was about the fact that I didn't feel I could be myself at school I felt like they they were crippled my brain was being crippled so I just thought if I didn't 
speak only when I was spoken to, then I'll be invisible and they wouldn't ask me to read. <laughs> it's, it's crazy the things that, yeah, children do. And that's what I did. It was a quite a difficult time because I could, I, it was like you were having an bo- out of body experience. You knew what was going on, but you couldn't speak to anybody because also culturally you don't talk and tell adults necessarily your business or. So there's other intersections happening there about speaking and sharing how you're feeling. So if I didn't say anything, it would just make it okay, but it wasn't okay because it was crippling me, really. Sometimes you have triggers and sometimes you have something that you may go one way or the other, right? So. For me, it was when my um, teacher told my parents when it's like towards the end of year 10 that I wasn't going to academically achieve. That was my moment when I I decided to decide. And I said that I'm going to walk into the light. I mean, this is me talking at 10, but I was really into poetry. So and I was into my Angela. So I'm going to walk into my light. And that's not going to be me. That's not going to be my statistic. Wow. Because already my grandmother was telling me, so this is the intersection from race and culture, that you've got to work twice as hard. So I was already being prepared to say, you've got to work twice as hard as a young black girl growing up. So whatever was going on about me not being able to learn, even though I wanted to learn, I'm just going to fight this through. I'm going to build some resilience here. So that was my stepping stone to move forward. I just thought it was important to mention that, that kind of intersection, the kind of the, the, the role of the family, the, the, the school, and how they can um, set children up in a way that doesn't build their self-esteem, their confidence. We need to sometimes look at a strength-based approach. Yes, we have to have tests, but you can test people in different ways. So if they tested me on the way I'm speaking or doing a performance, you know, it would come out showing different strengths about me or other children. And I feel, you know, my the, my class, my environment, my education, my gender, my race, they all may have had an intersection, you know, and had an impact on what I, how I was accessing learning. Sort of moving forward through, you know, teenage years being um yeah in my late teens I realized when I was diagnosed with being dyslexic when I was 16 because my um politics teacher said Marcia you're you know how you speak and how you you're explaining or giving you know say we talk about a status quo society or subcultures you you explain it when you're talking but when you're writing it down it doesn't reflect on paper so what we're going to do is do an assessment and it's having some teachers like that who see your abilities because from that point before that, I just thought that I wasn't intelligent, but dyslexia is not based on intelligence. It, it's it's about the phonological processes and all of those things, right? Yeah. And at a young age, it's hard to differentiate the two when you're still trying to understand it yourself. And like you said, if you loved school, but you felt that school didn't love you, that's a really hard environment to be in. Yeah. And you're comparing yourself with other children because you're told you're an A student, you're a, you're a B student, you're a... I didn't even have a whatever you was. So those things, you don't know what that is because you don't have life skills yet. You don't know. Or you if your parents don't yeah. have the confidence or awareness of how to kind of build that confidence, because my parents came here when they were eight and 10 or 11. So they were already been told about the system and they were told what they should be doing or not doing or that they were going to fail, you know, coming as immigrants from Jamaica. So this this was kind of a pattern of sort of behaviours and what they could do and there wasn't that they were fearful, but they had no awareness of how the education system, even though they were mm. part of it, because they came here very young. 
So those are all, again, some of the barriers and the systematic barriers that can happen. So for me, I think that that kind of talking about cultural perspective only came when I was about 16, when I was starting to look for role models. And I realised that I actually thought I was the only black person who had dyslexia because everybody I saw who was dyslexic was white. Mm, so again you're a teenager you're thinking well well, I've sort of kind of got this but nobody I know about nobody I know has dyslexia but from my my white peers and so yeah it was quite difficult in that sense to look for positive role models to feel like I could share and feel like I could feel like I could belong because you've got that whole I've got that background of no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. You know, I'm saying that and I hope that's okay to say that. So my parents were coming from that generation. So I've already been told that you have to be working hard enough. And then I've got, so I'm a young black girl. Then I've, you know, it's female. You've heard about the glass ceiling. And then you're being told you've got dyslexia. This is a lot of different things that I'm going to have to contend with. For one person to handle and to have to deal with. Like, how did your parents, when you were told that you had dyslexia, was there any self-reflection from them in terms of, okay, I might be dyslexic and was the support there and were they aware of what support could be there? No, (laughs) is what I'm going to say, because um, as I said, they come from a different time and era and that they, they had their own challenges to society, you know, how society was perceiving them, especially growing up, my dad grew up in Camden, Hampstead and, you know, was running away from different things that were happening. So it, it was a lot of things. Listen, what I will say to you is that my parents gave me love. I can say unconditional love, which is was what really gave rich. me. Yeah, it was it was Necessary. it was rich. But I have to find my way in the education system a lot of the time. As I said, my mum helped and got came to the head teacher when I was at primary school. And that's how I got this therapy. But in terms of knowing the the, the education system, they didn't know that. They didn't know the education system. So they gave me love. And I think that was fundamental. That was a good foundation for me because I knew I was loved and they, they wanted the best for me. But my teacher already told them in a, a meeting before I was going to secondary school, I wasn't going to academically achieve. So all they want is what they would say the best for their Marcy. They would just be happy for me, whatever I wanted. So because the teacher told me I wasn't going to academically achieve. You've got to remember, I had that in my head that I'm going to achieve. So I had reverted that into positivity and changed and shifted my mindset about how I was going to approach that. I didn't know what I was going to do to do it, but I know I was going to do my best to fight a system that I didn't understand what that system meant. I just understood that I wasn't going to be a statistic. And already I had the infrastructure of my grandmother's voice already telling me you've got to work twice as hard. So there's so many kind of layers and complexities to this but that's just part of my journey tough love you've got to get up pick yourself up and you've got to try and deal and make the best of what you can in your your life to achieve and be happy yeah you should be proud proud of the the work that you have done and what you have achieved Uh, are you proud I think that's a tricky question because I never looked at about being proud about anything and I think I'm trying to be more because I realise it's important for my self-care, my well-being, mm. that I do celebrate milestones and things I've achieved. I have got three degrees, but it was just like... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Not many there, Marcia. <laughs> but I'm just looking, that's the means to end to get to the next stage because that's how I had to train my brain. I didn't have time to get soft on this. 
there was a mission. And so I am trying to do that celebrating a lot more. I'm an observer on the executive board for the British Dyslexia Association. I'm co-founder of the Cultural Perspective in the Dyslexia Association. I've written a book. I'm in my second book. And all these things have come from seeing that light and wanting to achieve something different and not being that statistic as a young black girl. So that's kind of where this has come from, where this purpose to find my purpose, but it's taken time. It looks like it's all just happened by design. It it has, but because I wanted it to happen, I'm looking for the positivities and looking for the like-minded people, the people to be around, but it's taken me time because I had to build confidence and self-love in myself and acceptance. And I think we, no, sometimes people are not looking at the, the mental health. We're looking at it more, but the well-being, the mental health was really challenging for me. I, I have been in dark places. And this is all to do with my neurodiversity. And that's because of the systems that we have in place. You know, I feel, if I dare say, the education system's outdated. We can't be preparing people for a factory which doesn't exist anymore. The system hasn't evolved. We're still testing people on their memory, which doesn't work for all of us. We're still testing to prepare what for to be employees. I don't think all those jobs exist mm. necessary all the time. And I call myself a disruptive thinker. I'm an ideas person. I like to think outside the box. Not every dyslexic person's creative, but I happen to be a creative thinker. Mm-hmm. I like all things that helps me to explore, you know, like attention to like, you know, spotting a difference in things. These all make me very happy. I'm very sensory on some things and they make me feel happy, but I do well at them. And I don't even know the time sometimes. I'm so engrossed in doing what I love. Do you get what I mean? That you don't think, but you can't do that all day in a mainstream work. So work has to be more flexible. We need some radicalization. And that's what's happened. I've only just started to speak my truth and people have liked it. And that's how I got here. And that's, that's that's the bit of the journey. I'm just speaking. I'm not saying it's perfect (laughs) or I'm perfect in any shape or form because no one teaches that nothing is perfect. That's to be celebrated. Absolutely. I'm also really pleased that you have gone above and beyond in your career. And by the sounds of it, you know, you motivated yourself, you sculpted your, your, your own scripts, you, you know, in your own career path. Um, So there's so much to celebrate there. And it is, you're right, you do have to give yourself those moments to stop and smell the flowers and celebrate the small victories as well as the big victories. And looking back, there's so much in there that you've said that is so rich in terms of education. I'm still surprised that teachers are allowed to say to young people, you're not going to achieve or you're not going to have an academic career or sort of blunt opportunities for people and yet what they don't realise is that's just going to spur you on even more as it seems like it's done that for you but looking back at some of these experiences are there any particular moments that you can think about that were moments to celebrate that you laugh about your dyslexia? When I was a tutor I will be doing some presentation I'll be thinking I'll have word in my head But then I have to change it because I can't remember the words. But I have to do that all on the spot. And no one knows, but I know the things that I'm having to do and manoeuvre and navigate in my brain in order to still stand there and projecting while I'm talking, but doing all of these crazy things to get to the same end goal. But I'm still standing there talking. 
It's crazy. I wish we were able to record the internal cogs, you know, cognitive behaviours that are happening within our mind. Uh, And it can be really overwhelming. And like you said, you're the only one having that conversation with yourself. Mm. Um, And actually, I think that's part of the battle that we go through because then you're starting to analyse that on the spot, which may put you off externally what's happening. And, and it, it is a bit of a game. You, you, Liz, actually, you often associate dyslexia with a, a game, which I love. And sometimes it could be really fun and sometimes it can be a bit of a maze and you don't know where you're going to end up, uh, which is also lovely. And complicated. <laughs> and that's where the creativity comes in. That's why we can sometimes just be creative and think on the spot because I still have to turn up, right? I still have to perform what I have to do. Um, I could freeze but that's not going to help anybody. And because I've matured and I've grown into my dyslexia, because it's an ongoing, continuous, I'm always discovering. It's not something that's going to just end. So I, I, I learn strategies and techniques when that my brain just freezes. I can see the word. That's the funny thing about it. I can see the word. I can describe it. And sometimes I've had to do that with my family. I'm trying to find this word, guys. Um, it looks like <laughs> this. It's something, I can tell you what it does, but I can't say it. <laughs> oh my god I've been yeah. there so, and, and then they've, they've, they've discovered the word from them. I'm like yeah that's it psychology yeah. but I just couldn't remember the word at the time I'm just saying psychology for example but I find those funny I laugh about it um, because I can't do nothing about that that's the way my brain is working at that time and sometimes people just so based on the reading and writing of dyslexia mm. I spent most of my secondary school on the a table which I now realize probably was a table where people couldn't do much but I was sometimes on that table by myself doing cube discoveries of different cubes because I like that so the teacher obviously thought that's I'll give that to Marcy she's good at that I, I can't remember doing any equations that my children are doing. I can't remember. Wow. So that's what happened. That was failed. You know, we only came out of one GCSE. I don't even talk about it. It's like a blur. It's only really, I've started talking about it because I'm writing a book. It, it's like I blanked it out. Like it was an out-of-body experience. It, it happened. I was there. I, you know, like back in the days when we were at school, I was here. It was like, I was here, but don't know. <laughs> It seems like you are there, but like you said, if there's an antibody experience, you're not. You want to be somewhere else. But I quite like the fact that you've you've come back to school because there was just one thing I wanted to ask. You said that it was a teacher that was like that golden nugget. Yeah, my government politics teacher. Yeah. A lot of people have bad experiences at school. We know they're still happening today. How can people approach this when someone is diagnosed with dyslexia? I think the key is you've got to empower people. You've got to empower the children. You've got to tell them when they're good at things. So that teacher said to me that, Marcia, I can see, it's almost like I can see your potential. What you're saying is amazing almost. He didn't say it in these words, but that's what I was hearing. You're great, Marcia. You, you've, you've got it, but it's just, we're not getting it quite right on that paper. Do you see that quite right? Not like you're not going to achieve. It's different, isn't it? Yeah. So the language, the language we're speaking we can speak a language to ourselves, internalise it. But when you're speaking to others, that language is so, I'm so mindful. And I think that's what makes sometimes some of us as dyslexics in particular, because obviously I know more about dyslexia, that emotional intelligence is pretty high because I'm fully aware and I, I can sense things because I, I know what I would like for myself. And I kind of do that for others in terms of I can see or I can feel. You get a vibration, something's not quite right, and you go over to them because you know what you would like. And that, te- that teacher was able to read that I had the potential and that helps can help someone fly Massively. because someone's believing in them. Someone's believing. And that's all you need is someone to just believe in you. And 
maybe pushy sometimes where you don't like to be in that comfort zone, but say, hey, you've got this, but you, you've you got to meet them halfway. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So I was willing to do that because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm dyslexic. Yeah. Wow, there's a word for this. All these years, I've been suffering in silence, but now you're telling me it's a word that is associated with my learning differences or my word blindness, what's making me struggle. And I don't need to struggle anymore because I'm going to have the tools mm. to be able to do. So I just to go back to your question, it's about that the way we speak to one another is about kindness and compassion and the language that we all have differences. Somebody who is neurotypical may have difficulties, like we said with the presentation, just like we have, but it's all of the kind of uh, imposter syndrome, the sabotages that we may have done from earlier on that we're bringing into our adulthood Mm. because we've had all of those really negative experiences. So we could be the same as our peers. So, you know, some people I have that conversation, but I experience that. But it's sometimes I call it my shopping bags that I'm carrying along mm-hmm. the way, all those traumatic things, the stuttering when I'm trying to make yeah. a sound or read phonics because I couldn't do phonics at all. It didn't work for me at all. So all of those other aspects I'm bringing along into that environment, that's what sometimes makes it different. Do you see what I mean? But yeah, if we were to talk to our peers, we're all having different things, but no one talks about it. We're just seeing that you're an A student, you're a D student. Yeah, for sure. It's just so much of what you're saying really resonates with me. And it's almost like someone talking for you. (laughs) It's such a weird experience sometimes on this podcast, just how much there are similarities between all of our lives because of the challenges that we've faced with dyslexia. And, you know, you're the co-founder of the British Dyslexia Association's Cultural Committee. Cultural Perspective Committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, let me try and say that. Cultural perspective. Yeah, it's a bit of a long word. I didn't create the word. I didn't create the word. It was Kate who came up with that. Um, Do you want me to tell you just how that came about? Please do. Yeah, Yeah. please. So how that came about, I went to an AGM, oh, gosh, 2016, November. it, It was. Sorry, Marcy, what's an AGM? Annual general meeting that happens for any charities. You have to have an annual general meeting where you may present your finances and anything that, you know, you want to present. You may have Mm -hmm. some new trustees. That will be the time all of the members will vote. So I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the trustee of the Wolfen Forest Dyslexia Association. So we're associated with the British Dyslexia Association. So everybody who's members or part of those different um, uh, trustee bodies or, or charities can come to the um, the AGM so you can vote and, you know, meet other people who are in the same kind of space. So I was there and um, I just kind of through observation, you know, noticed that most of the people there were white. I think wrong with that, but also um, we're, we're a little bit older. So there's this also about, you know, age, nothing wrong with that also, but it's about having that diversity and that mm-hmm. inclusivity because... Yeah. People are getting older and we've got the same type of people. But we, I know for sure that dyslexia is across the board because I remember being young. It's across the board, right? But it's not reflective within no. that particular AGM at the time. It wasn't reflecting a diverse cultural perspective. So that's where probably the cultural perspective came from. But also that everybody was just that little bit older like me. So I'm putting myself in that equation. So where are the young people, for example? So it makes it diverse. So we can have that conversation and enrich it with everybody. So I mentioned this to the um, CEO at the time. And 
I didn't know another lady did the same thing who was also there, who was black um, and she was a practitioner. So she was teaching. So she wasn't, um, she was an ally. She wasn't dyslexic, but she was also there to gain knowledge, find out what the British Dyslexic Association is doing as she's a member. And then Kate at the time, the CEO said, look, um, something's happening here. I've just had somebody else. You need to meet them. And we're going to do something today because I can't talk from this voice. I can't talk from this lived experience, but I I know something needs to be done because I'm aware and I can see that things need to change. And all of a sudden I found myself on the stage and they, um, Kate said, we're going to have a cultural perspective committee. Does everybody vote in? And that's how it happened. Oh, wow. And that's how it happened. What, on the stage in that same meeting? <laughs> yeah. The state, oh my gosh. Were you okay with that? With being, there's a lot to unravel there because... Whose responsibility is it to put a committee together? I mean, yeah, how was that? It was like, wow, okay. <laughs> and I just went along with it. You know, one of the things for some of us who are, who are dyslexic, you know, we like to take risk. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those. I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm here. Okay, yep, yeah, I'm doing it. And that's me. And I have to sometimes pull myself back because I say yes to quite a lot of things. And I'm not saying that's my mm. dyslexia, but I do wonder because I do like to take risk as well. And um, that's that kind of entrepreneur side of things like, you know, there's a gap. Let's mm-hmm. go for it. So I just kind of ran with it. I didn't question. I didn't think about it. I do the thinking afterwards. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. It's because, you know, <laughs> this, we're in it now. So let's just go for it and let's see what happens. And that's how that's how it, it happens, because I just kind of say, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do this. So um, so we started having meetings. We used to meet in Suffolk, near Suffolk Bridge, and having these meetings in a, a coffee shop, I'll say no names. Then we started to sort of put something together about what this was, and then the aims, the objectives, breaking barriers and stigma around the African and Caribbean community. I think the word BAME, which was like Black ethnic minority, was around at the time. It wasn't something that was kind of favourable because you can't put everybody who Mm-mm. is, so to speak, a minority all in the same thing because our lived experience and um, journeys are different. So different. So we kind of battled with that and uh, we sort of put something together around that. And um, yeah, and then that's how we formed. So we did a few events and it didn't have to be just about the Black community, but we wanted to bring more awareness. And I think we've achieved that to some extent. I mean, there's so much more to do because we were never meant to be a permanent committee and we're still not a permanent committee. What we wanted, which is that beginning of that journey, which I explained, is that to see more people who look like us represented in a kind of national organisation and about its policies and around equality and diversity and that dyslexia to send that message. It doesn't matter your class, the country you come from, anyone can be dyslexic. And that's yeah. the message we wanted to put across and that that would be it woven into the, the, the British Dyslexia Association's sort of policy and ethos and values and stuff like that. So we're still not a permanent committee. It shouldn't be that it's a cultural perspective committee. That shouldn't be the case. So it's still to me, and I still stand by that. It's not a permanent one. We're hoping things will yeah, change. Yeah, let's watch this space. Yeah, yeah, to, because it's not. It shouldn't be permanent. Because I think initially people no. question, what, why do we need a cultural perspective? So it's just something that should be evolving. And I think when um, I think the Black Life Matter kind of happened, I think people started to connect it more. Oh, right. So this is because there's other intersections, whether it's at your workplace. You know, I've been to situations mm. and I've seen colleagues and even myself that there can be other things that happen for people with their lived experiences 
I, I, I'm aware of things. I don't, you know, no, no, you haven't asked me the question around that, but those kind of intersections around discrimination, not just for disability, but for race and um, gender. So those, those other layers do play a part. And we just thought that was a really important aspect that should be raised and talked about openly and transparency as part of all of our journeys as neurodivergence, that there can be other intersections that can play factors to people's lived experience of having a disability, if you want to say it's a disability, because I don't say I've got a disability. I think the society makes me disabled. Mm, That's interesting. Yes, that is so, so true. We've been toying with this and having this conversation quite a lot, actually, about is it a disability? Isn't it? I mean, it's classed as a disability, but do we see it as a disability? But you've just hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, this the way that the societal structure is makes it a disability. Damn, I'm gonna just take a minute to let that sink in. That is that that's quite a revelation. Yeah, so true, so true. It's all right, and that's why we have to have the adjustments because the way the structure, whether it's mm. in the school or we're in the workplace, it doesn't work for the way we work. So we have to have the adjustments, whether it's the software, yeah. whether it's the quiet space. Yeah, because it's not the system's not set up. So we go back to that system and the factory working. Yeah, exactly. And we're, you know, we're having to raise our voices and we're constantly having to put ourselves on the line. (laughs) Absolutely. Into vulnerable positions where we're saying, hey, this doesn't work for me. Can you please try and adjust this? And, um, you know, it's not a very enjoyable space to be. That's why it starts with the organisations and the CEOs. It needs to start with leadership. You know, my manager didn't know what access to work was. So that's not her. That's not just down to her. That's about an organization making sure that all their staff are equipped and understand neurodiversity, not just a tick box. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been to the introduction. You're just thinking, really? No, this is not it. We've got to change the cultures and have that culture of understanding of inclusivity. It's bigger. It's greater than us, if you know what I mean. But we have to try to amplify our voices at the same time. And that can be really tricky and difficult because there's so, there's so many of us who are still silent and quiet. Do you know what, Marcy? I'm, this is a podcast. I'm supposed to be talking. And yeah, I'm just like writing <laughs> so many notes. <laughs> and it's so amazing. Um, so bear with me. Even, <laughs> We're in this um, together. I'm just sorry. I, I can talk for England. So I might not even giving you space. I might not be even letting you. you speak. <laughs> we are here to hear you speak. So... But my next question is, how do you see us framing the conversation around dyslexia and how will this help the barriers that people from different cultural and religious beliefs face in the context of dyslexia? Damn, that is a question and a half. Doing what we're doing now, this is breaking barriers. This is about collaborating. And I believe in collaboration. You know, I don't want to use the expression, no man's an island, but we need to be in this together. It doesn't matter where we're coming from, what page we are, but if we can come together and have that bonding of, and that we have that kind of commonality, then that's where it starts. And us talking and raising about, if you've got a space to use that space or that platform, let's, let's bring it on. Let's, let's do this. We need to be talking more together and we need to be finding opportunities and spaces to do that, whether it's on a 
you know, on a um, newsletter. Hi, here's Charlotte. Here's Marcia. But, you know, we need to be just working together more. And I don't mean just me and you or you guys, but you're just collaborating more all around because there's a lot of us here, but we're just so quiet about things, especially for some of us. And I say that mm. from only because of some of my friends from a cultural perspective, from it's really hard because they have, they're having other battles about how they feel about themselves and their own identities around feeling not belong. So there's a whole thing around not feeling in that, that belonging. So I did feel that. I'm, I, I know, I'm, I'm very clear about that. I understand that now, that that whole thing, you know, as a young black girl growing up, not feeling that I didn't belong. So already the colour of my skin was having an impact. Then you hear things about gender and women, you know, don't get paid as much. You know, I'm hearing these things as I'm growing up, right, as a child. And then wham, you've told you're dyslexic. I was embracing, I was celebrating that. Probably I did celebrate that. That was probably the biggest celebrate. It's like, yeah, there's something to the name. I'm not stupid. Yeah. You know, because I didn't think about intelligence in that way at the time, because that's how it was sold to me at education level, right? That, you know, if you're intelligent, if you get an A. So, yeah, so it's so many different things. But I think if answering an element of what you've asked me, it would be about us doing like what we're doing now. Let's talk, let's, let's, let's use mm. those platforms that we have to elevate people and be talking about this openly and trying to get to some of those people where we can within leadership who are making decisions because they're making some bad decisions around inclusivity, you know, right from the beginning of recruitment. That's mm -hmm. stopping people applying. Massively. It's shocking the statistics of how many people with dyslexia are on Job Seekers Allow Us. It's really high. And yeah, you're so right. From the word go, we're set a challenge. And you just can't live like that. There's so much that we've kind of spoken about here and I can completely understand why you have written books, plural, or on your second book. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about your book? So the book I'm, I'm writing currently is about what we would be been talking about, what I've been sharing a little bit about my lived experience as um, a young girl growing up in the East End of London. So I share a lot about that and what school was like for me. The whole thing that I mentioned to you about feeling invisible, don't feel that I'm, um, I belong, that whole thing around diversity, feeling included, equity, all these things that I know now, but at the time I didn't know what it was. All I knew is that I didn't feel that I belonged. There was a lot of things in society were saying that we didn't belong as a young black girl and that my parents had to work hard. You know, that book's always been inside of me since primary school because I felt I wanted to be able to share something about what's happened to me. I never looked at it was going to be in this form. It just like I loved writing. I liked poetry from, yeah, no, learning about Maya Angelou and loving about poetry because it's not rigid. It's not structured. It's not hasn't got all those rules of the commas in the way and I like the patterns and stuff like that so, oh, wow. so that really taught me that I knew that I wasn't silly I knew that from school that I I think mm. a bit deeper and that's why I like being around adults more than children because they didn't really get me so in saying all of that I think again it was in 2016 I started I, even before that I told one of the um, Ruth who's part of the cultural perspective that I'm writing a book so she's been telling me from the beginning, you're an author. So it's that kind of affirmation, you're an author. So it goes, Marcia, you're already an author. And I'm like, what's she talking about? So then I think it was talking with um, Kate and Kathy around their book and signing the contracts. And I, I sort of went to the publishing 
I won't say their names. I went to that particular publisher and said, look, I'm writing a book. I'm, again, remember I like taking risks. I'm, I'm writing a book. So the book's not finished. I'm writing a book. And then it was from there I sort of shared with them and I did a proposal around talking about black and dyslexic and that lived experience. And I already got over 30 people who said they would want to contribute to it. So I wanted to oh, not wow. just talk about my story. I wanted to talk about other people's story who um, who are dyslexic and black, because I think that story, Asha Holmes, who's written a book about the cultural perspective, was the first book that I was aware of. And I happened to be in that book. And I just wanted to do more of that because I think that's missing. It's like sometimes you just feel invisible. You know you're not, but your mm. story's never, you know, yeah. we get all the elite, you know, and don't get me wrong, I'm saying this in the kindest way, the Richards, the Jamies, but you don't see anybody that, it's just from a diverse perspective. You just about see women, you just about see women. So yeah. it's very male orientated. Then you get the women of, sure. from a, a sort of, possibly sometimes from a middle-class background, but you're not getting that diversity. I'm not just saying it has to be a book for, yeah. for people who are of, mm. you know, from a black community, but it's just we're not getting that diversity about who's dyslexic. Those role models that we need for our children Definitely. are missing. So just like when I was growing up 16, the role models weren't there. So that's kind of the basis of where this book's come from to change that I call myself a bit of a narrative changer is provoking the the narrative to what we have and what we what we conform to I'm not saying I'm a rebel but I just think we need to just like I said about the school system someone's got to say something that we all know it we all know there's something wrong we all know that children get excluded at year nine and there's something going on they can have undiagnosed Mm -hmm. learning differences but no one does anything more than just talks about it so I wanted to just shake it up a little bit. Let's say, okay, I'm going to talk about a book. It's going to be about the black, dis- you know, the black lived experience. And so that's really mm. where the basis of the book is coming from. I'm really, really excited to read it. And I am wondering how you've written the book. Have you written it in a, in a phonetical way? Or have you embraced the dyslexic way of writing? And I'm a bit old school, so there could be some amazing ways to do it. And I know there is, but I use my phone and then I send it to myself. So I do a voice note, text, so voice to text, and then I correct it as well. (laughs) So I'm probably doing things so long-winded, but it feels good to me. It's, It's sometimes about feelings for me. So... I don't use Dragon to do any of my writing, but I'm, I'm sure that would be a great way or sort of a, I don't want to, I don't know if I'm promoting different um, softwares, but other That's systems okay. like Karen that we used to talk, I'm sure they're great. And probably it would be really easy for me, but there's some things that's, you know, I'm still moving from my pen to paper, which I still do. So I do a lot of writing as well. I know there are some technologies where you take the picture and then it, it goes into text for you. That would be great for me. I think yeah. there are some, but I just haven't mm. explored. I'm a bit lazy like that. Don't explore it. If, Unless someone gives me yeah. a nap. Any listeners <laughs> out there, if you know what that tech is, please yeah, you send can take a picture. Because <laughs> that would be really helpful if it could read my writing. <laughs> that's the other thing. I don't know if the picture could transfer. Anyway, I'd be interested I mean, to so see. I mean, so that's really what I've been doing is using my phone. So this is like hot off the press. It's my mm. phone, guys. <laughs> I don't do the, you know, the other forms, but I do use read and write to listen back to what I've written mm. um, and I, I I never I never realized until I got my access to work this time around and got that software how um, useful it is on my brain because sometimes you're reading it's really taxing your brain because it's 
is you've really got to focus and concentrate. But when you've got something playing back, what you're having to read, it just relaxed me a bit. And I never realised, I never had that strategy Mm. before. And it's made a lot of difference to my life. It's a new one for me as well, Read and Write. And um, I'm actually using it right now. And it is really, really helpful. We've covered so many different things here. And I can hear within what we've spoken about how dyslexia has yes, shaped it you. has. If you had to sum that up into a few sentences, how, how would you describe how dyslexia has shaped you? Well, it shaped me in terms of um, understanding about vulnerability, about having to ask for help. It makes me quite tearful, actually. Um, it helps me to how to ask for help and be able to be vulnerable, but then still pick yourself up. And that emotional intelligence as well. I'm very able to and tuned in with other people's feelings and emotions. And so I don't know, you know, lots of people talk about that as neurodiversity, you know, they've got high emotional intelligence. I'm very good with people. I'm very good at talking and empathising with others. And I think those are some of the attributes or some of the things that I've gained as skills because of my dyslexia. It's been amplified because I've needed to use those in many ways, especially asking for help. Because as I've mentioned before, I mm. kind of talk about it, but we are not really talking them from a cultural perspective. You know, you know, asking for help is something that, again, I wasn't taught that you should do. You don't talk to people or tell people your business. Um, I don't know if you get what I'm saying by that. And maybe other cultures have that. So it was learning to ask and not being feel yeah. like, you know, I, I still can be proud Sometimes you've got to unlearn some of that because right. if you don't ask for help, you won't get the right support. So mm. I think learning to know how to ask for help and helping empowering others to ask for help, those are some of the things I would say that I've gained along the way and can help and empower others to do and to find their voice because I've been through that process. And so I know I wouldn't, without my dyslexia, I, would, I don't know if I would be that kind of person. I'm not sure because it could be my character. It could be part of my DNA. But my DNA is my dyslexia and that right side of my brain. So it's, it's complex sometimes because I do try to work out and have those inner conversations. This sounds strange, guys, whoever's listening, that inner voice, those conversations with that other voice. Lots of times to work out who I really am. Is that really me? Is that my dyslexia? And, it, and I laugh too because I think it's funny, but I'm sure other people who have conversations with themselves, but it's... Oh, I I'm do. laughing because yeah. I do on a on a continual basis. I mean, I've been doing it all <laughs> um, the way so through this So I as well. feel my dyslexia yeah. has definitely shaped who I am. It's given me some real good tools to be able to manoeuvre and navigate, which are really useful within the an organisation. They don't know it, but for a lot of us, we would be really good um, in organisations with some of these schools of being disruptive, but disruptive for business. Um, in the sense that to absolutely, in but because of way. the infrastructures that we currently have from the school right into the workplace, they can cause real systematic barriers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need us there is what I'm saying. We need to be there. We need to be everywhere. Um, we are by design. We're born this way for a reason. We've all got a purpose, right? Doesn't matter whether you're who you are, where you're located. Mm-hmm. We all have, that. it's finding that purpose. That's what makes us be great entrepreneurs because we find mm. other ways. And sometimes that's hard as well. 
So in a nutshell, what am I trying to say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm still discovering and still exploring and I'm still <laughs> so learning because dyslexia doesn't stop. Just because I'm aware of it, it doesn't stop. It, it, I have dyslexia every day. Um, so it's a daily thing and I'm always discovering. Mm. I'm laughing at myself as well because you have to have humour in this process because it's almost like we're fighting a system that doesn't make us fit, but but we know we fit into something, but we're still having to justify it and still trying to clarify, I know I, I belong. I know I'm here. I'm born. It's all these kind of like, you know, the beginnings of the earth questions. Why am I having these? You know, it's quite funny and I have to laugh about it, but it's because of, the, yeah. you know, the barriers that are in our way really to get to be, to be really us, be authentically ourselves. You're saying so much goodness there, Marcia. If you could describe one quality that got you where you are today, what would that be? I'm going to say resilience. It seems to be a that poor resilience again, but it's given me, I think, the resilience of being able to just pick myself up and start again, because we have to do that a lot of times, or I've had to do that a lot of times. Obviously, we've talked about the unconditional love of my parents being there in that way. So it's got to be the resilience and that the tough love I've had, the culture, I, my cultural experiences helped me a lot as well. So my grandmother, my family, yeah, in lots of different ways, they've given me that. So it, I'm going to say resilience, but there's so many different things. But it's that resilience to never give up and never give up on myself. I've had to do a lot of inner child work to, you know, I still have triggers, but I have to learn to to pick myself and say, Marcia, it's okay to feel this way. We need to be in touch with our emotions. It's okay mm. to feel this way and feel, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I can't cope. And then once I get out of that mode and talk myself through it, I'm not self-sabotaging myself anymore. I'm not feeling the imposter sim anymore because I'm more confident and have more self-belief and less self-doubt. Yes. But um, yeah, it, the system can catch you every so often because again, the barriers come up sure. again and you're like, uh, but I'm, I'm doing so well. <laughs> and then so it's not me it's the systems you know but um I'm gonna say resilience but I feel there's more to that resilience it's, it's a lot of other things but it's the thing what's helped me to maneuver and navigate through and not give up and you know when I couldn't get through because I didn't have my GCSEs I looked at other ways I did an access course I kept on pushing I kept on pushing until I found a way so when you've got that kind of mindset so uh, about you know not giving up and seeing your own potential mm. even though you don't see your potential which is it sounds weird a contradiction but you know you, you know you're you're more than what you've been told on the paper and you you know I just never saw I saw that I might have saw the D but I wasn't seeing the D because I'm going to still get a job <laughs> you go uh, you know wow. so yeah. um, I just kept on pushing but it's so incredible but it can break people people can get exhausted we can get exhausted as well we can get yeah, burnout definitely. so don't get me wrong that is resilience but we can get bin I am only human and I can get burnt out when yeah. you're always pushing it can get exhausted so you self-care mm. is so important I would say as well I'd really love to hear, and if you're willing to to share, you know, what advice would you give to young dyslexics, and particularly young dyslexics who are often underrepresented in the conversation surrounding dyslexia? What would you What Ooh, would you say? Oh, that's to them? a big one because I'm just going to say to you briefly. I'm not trying to open up any more conversations. So, as you know, I'm dyslexic. 
my mum's dyslexic, my daughter's dyslexic. So I'm living around neurodiversity and my, my nephew's autistic. So neurodiversity is around me. So it's whatever the generation or the stage is, I'm going to be in it for a little while. I say that because it's part of my surroundings, my environment, and I'm not going to be quiet about changing the narrative and, and making difference because I have a young girl that's grown up who's dyslexic and I want change for her. I want her to feel she can go into any kind of institutional and feel empowered and feel I'm here. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Attitude, you know, and um, I feel, you know, I'm doing my best. Don't get me wrong. You know, living with, around a load of neurodivergence, we all have our different ways. But I hope I've instilled her and hopefully in the work I do, because I work for a local authority and I help empower parents and young people to find their voice and understand the SEN law and all those other amazing things that parents have to struggle with. But I'm saying amazing in the sense that I've, I've been given the opportunity to help others to understand the systems. And I just want to make change, really. I just want to empower and help the younger generation as well as adults as well. We forget our adults. There's still adults who are suffering in silence and not speaking up to find their voice. I never planned this journey for myself to be speaking this way, but I just feel that I just had to do something because it still continues today. It still continues that feel people feel they don't belong. Um, so yeah, I, this wasn't, I didn't choose this. I was actually quite a shy person <laughs> because of all of the things that have happened to me. And so this has been a journey to find my voice. And um, I just want others to do that because we, we, we do deserve that. There you are having a black woman talking about it when we, it doesn't always seem the norm. And we all seem to be, as I said, very, we're, we're not invisible, but invisible. It's just a very odd kind of paradox. Mm. You know, I'm not invisible, but I'm invisible because you don't see me anywhere. And I don't talk academic. I talk lived experience. And that's not all. It's only now really becoming um, kind of like people are talking about the lived experience now as being valid and in par with academic because I'm an expert on myself. And parents who have children with are experts on their children. So let's not discard that. And that's where I'm coming from. I don't want to be radical, but I have to, we have to switch this up a bit. If that's talking about race, if that's talking about class, if that's talking about our environment, it just, it's just because I've lived it. I've, I have to speak about it. I can't be silent anymore. That is a perfect finishing statement, statement Marcia. Yeah. I hope that our listeners take that away with them. And we certainly will. Um, the work you're doing is incredible. And I'm really excited for your book to be released. Um, keep us posted on that. Yes, please. Like you've said, it's it's vulnerable speaking about lived experiences and you've shared that so beautifully and we know that that will resonate with mm. so many of our listeners. So thank you so much for, A, the work that you do and for speaking about it with us today. It's a pleasure. We have to be intentional, right? So this is why we're here. We have to work with intent. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds, and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios London with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker. <laughs>